You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I'm super excited to have Dr. Kristen Choi uh, on the show with us today. Uh, She is a psychiatric nurse and health services researcher. She currently works as an assistant professor of nursing and public health at the University of California, Los Angeles, better known as UCLA. Dr. Choi studied health services and policy approaches to promoting mental health among children and adolescents. Her current research project includes studies on adverse childhood experiences, developmental disabilities, and the intersection of homelessness and mental illness. In addition to her role at UCLA, Dr. Choi is an investigator with Kaiser Permanente Southern California and an associate director for the UCLA National Clinician Scholars Program. As both a clinician and a scientist, Dr. Choi maintains a clinical practice as a registered nurse at a safety net psychiatric hospital in downtown Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Dr. Choi. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so excited to have you. I, I've been following you, uh, you know, I'll have to admit, I, I've been following you uh, really uh, since pandemic time. That's kind of when uh, <laughs> I start, I connected with you via Twitter and I saw the work that you were doing and uh, became an admirer of your, of your work. Um, so uh, without further ado, let's get into your career and how you got started in the world of nursing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll just mention briefly, likewise, I feel like I know you from Twitter, even though we haven't really connected much other than Twitter in the past. And it's really wonderful uh, to make those connections on Twitter and, you know, find like-minded folks in nursing. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, let's see here, my nursing career. Um, I uh, went into nursing into a direct entry BSN program. And, you know, at the time I was in high school, I didn't really think very much about what it meant to be a nurse or really what nursing was. Um, I know a lot of people who go into nursing because they've had a personal experience with nurses or with being sick, or maybe they have a family member who was a nurse. And it seems like some nurses have known since they were like three years old that they wanted to be a nurse. That was not me. I, I didn't know almost anything about nursing. But I remember in high school when I was sort of thinking about what I wanted to do and uh, just researching career paths, I came across nursing and felt like this seemed like a good blending of my interest in math and science, but also something that had a lot of meaningful human interaction. And so I kind of chose it uh, without too much thought or understanding of what nursing was. Um, I went to nursing school at the University of Michigan, uh, which is a direct entry program and, and really got involved in the patient care space right away when I was a freshman. Funny enough, the first thing I ever did in a clinical was in a psychiatric unit, and that's where my, my practice ended up. But in any case, I realized pretty quickly when I got to nursing school that being a bedside RN uh, was not going to work for me. And and there are a couple of reasons why. 
Um, I felt like I, when I would work with patients and I would go into the clinical space, I found myself so much more interested in the upstream reasons why patients were in the hospital and why they were so sick. And maybe even more than these upstream issues that brought patients to the hospital, I found myself really drawn to the health system problems and really wondering why I saw communication between members of the healthcare team happening the way they did, uh, why I saw issues with access and quality and, and bottlenecks and all kinds of problems in the way we were delivering care. And I kind of came to feel that, you know, as a nurse, and really this is true for any healthcare provider, you know, you work within this healthcare system where you really have to take care of patients one at a time. And I, I started to feel like clinicians, uh, in a way, not in all cases, but you can start to feel like you're just a cog in a machine. And I really felt like I wanted to be someone who fixed that machine more so than, than being a cog. Uh, that's, of course, oversimplifying what it means to be a clinician. Uh, there's, of course, a lot of meaningful interactions that come with working with patients. And that's why I still work with patients myself. But um, I, I just kept finding myself looking, looking upstream in, in a lot of different ways. Um, so that was my start to nursing. And uh, I, I think that, you know, I didn't really know exactly what to do with that. I thought maybe I'd become a nurse practitioner or maybe I would go into healthcare quality or something of that nature. But around the same time that I kind of came to feel that uh, direct clinical care was not going to be my whole nursing career, the University of Michigan started a brand new uh, accelerated BSN to PhD program. Uh, there was a big push uh, at the time I was in nursing school, um, and this had to do with the Future of Nursing report push to increase the number of PhD prepared nurses to try to get folks uh, into PhDs earlier in their nursing careers and to try to get uh, people who were fresh out of a BSN program right into a PhD so that, you know, uh, theoretically, at least we could have a long sustained uh, scientific career. So um, I, uh, I joined one of these programs and I will be honest with you, I really at the time, you know, I was 19 years old in college. I didn't really understand what a PhD was. I didn't really understand what research was. Um, I could understand that getting a PhD was an opportunity to be a leader and to make change at a bigger level. Uh, but I think I, I didn't quite grasp what, what I was getting into at the time. Um, as I finished up nursing school and got into the PhD, I came to understand much more what it was and, and what the role of nurse scientist was. Uh, I, I finished my PhD at Michigan and uh, then came over to UCLA to do a postdoc in health services research. Um, my, my PhD, you know, I think I had some kind of similar realizations to what I had as a nursing student. I was doing very clinical research. A lot of nurses in schools of nursing do research on clinical outcomes, clinical interventions, and really focused on research at the level of individual patients. But I think I felt, uh, as I got into clinical research, uh, again, that draw to really think much more about a bigger picture and to think a lot more about systems and policies. And, I think that rather than wanting to do research on patients uh, and interventions that work for patients, I really wanted to study health systems and how we deliver care uh, and to really think about it at that level. So that's what brought me to UCLA. I did a postdoc at UCLA called the National Clinician Scholars Program, which is uh, focused on health services research training. And then I really uh, came to uh, have excellent collaborations and a lot of really exciting opportunities here in Southern California. And so I'm now on faculty at the UCLA School of Nursing. Um, and, and again, I think that uh, I, I still uh, consider myself to be really early in my nursing career. I, I am not sure that I will stay in this role or, or you know, 
uh, that being a nurse with a PhD means that I'll be a scientist forever. But for now, it feels like doing research on health services is uh, where I want to try to make an impact. And so this is where I see myself at least uh, getting started. That's fantastic. Um, uh, we have we have a lot in common other than the fact that uh, uh, you were uh, looking at PhDs at 19 and I was looking <laughs> at PhDs in my 40s. Uh, so, <laughs> well, you know, um, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I actually think that you may have had it right in some ways. You know, this push for young nurses to get a PhD is something that I've really thought a lot about in retrospect. Um, again, at the time I did it, I think there was a sense uh, among a lot of nurses of an older generation who were heads of schools of nursing and leaders in our profession. I think there started to be a bit of a panic about the future of nursing and who our future leaders would be. And this idea that let's get nurses into, you know, PhD programs quickly and at a young age uh, was kind of being billed as this innovative solution and then something that was a really good idea. Um, and I think in some ways it was a good idea, but in others, you know, um, there are challenges to what I did. And, and when I look back on it, I think that I, uh, you know, had a lot of uh, growing up to do and a lot of learning to do about what it really meant to step into a role like this. And in some ways, I, I see value in waiting a bit longer to make a decision like getting a PhD when, you know, in my case, at least, I really didn't even know what it was. And, and I say that because part of these accelerated PhD programs, at least the one I was a part of, there was a very strong message that, you know, to be a nurse scientist, you do not have to do clinical practice. Uh, you know, you should just skip clinical practice, go right to science, and you can do great science without ever um, working as a nurse. And uh, I think that I kind of accepted that line of thinking because that's what my mentors really told me. But when I finished my PhD and, and came to UCLA, I found myself feeling like such a poser. You know, here I was claiming to be a nurse and a researcher. And, and I really found that, you know, the value of what I brought to the table in a lot of research contexts when it comes to health services is the fact that I'm a nurse, but I didn't even feel like I was a real nurse because I hadn't really spent much time with patients. So um, that led me to, to backtrack in a lot of ways. I started practicing on the side as a psychiatric nurse, which is closest to my patient population. And uh, have really come to see this this sort of uh, thinking that you know you don't have to be a practicing nurse to be a good scientist. I've experienced that a bit differently, and and I would say to this day the most valuable thing that I do that carries the most weight in circles that I'm a part of uh, with researchers and 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 other folks who might be in the science space is the fact that I'm a practicing nurse, not the fact that I have a PhD in nursing. So I I do see some value uh, to to waiting a bit before making such a consequential decision. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I, you know, like you, I actually started looking at a PhD uh, around the time that actually uh, the future of nursing report, the first future of nursing report came out. Uh, mm -hmm. And I said, how can I contribute to this report? And getting my doctorate was really the next step for me. Uh, and then at, at one point, my wife said, uh, you know, if you're going to go back for your PhD, now would be the time to do it. And it was in mm -hmm. 2014 that I went back for my PhD. Uh, but I agree with you because a lot of people are like, what's the difference between uh, the research that you do and what anybody else does? And I always tell them, um, well, the re research is research. It's the, it's the viewpoint that I think nursing brings to research. We look at things from a nurse's perspective uh, and from a, from, a, from a nurse's education and training perspective. 
which is different than a physician doing research or a, uh, somebody that is, you know, biologically, you know, working in a lab and looking at uh, other types of research. I said, research is research, except the lens that we bring, bring to the table is different. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that's, that's very valuable. So I agree. Yeah. With- yeah, a- absolutely. And, you know, when I look at nurse scientists who, who do research, I, I always tell this to my students, I think there's a couple different ways you can approach research. There are some nurses who go into research, not just nurses, all kinds of folks, who really are doing research, uh, kind of knowledge for the sake of knowledge. How can we learn new things, you know, publish new things in, in academic journals and just gain incremental knowledge and, and kind of leave it at that. You know, my job is to produce new knowledge. But then there are also nurse scientists who see creating new knowledge through research as, as something that's part of um, an action agenda and something where there's a bigger goal of actually creating change in healthcare. And I think that your orientation, whether you're doing research for the sake of research or research for the sake of actual health system change uh, is a pretty different goal. And I think that if you do wanna do that second kind of research that's actually gonna have um, an impact on practice and really make a difference for real people in the real world, it does require a very different skill set than just your your hard science skills. And that's where I agree completely that your lens as a nurse and your clinical background as a nurse really uh, becomes very valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, Now, um, what made you get into the specialty area that you're researching now? Um, So um, like I I mentioned in your bio, you're now uh, now researching uh, ACEs, which is the adverse childhood experiences, uh, which actually is something I I did I wasn't even aware of, uh, even though I've been around nursing for about fourteen years now, um, and uh, I, I never even heard of it till like a few years ago when I just by chance ran into something, and I really delve into it because I wanted to. It made sense for so, another research project I was working on. Um, so how did you get involved with this, with, with this patient population and the topic specifically as a researcher? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that, you know, my interest in mental health came from a couple of different places. So I think one was uh, clinical um, in those early experiences that I had as a nursing student, I felt like I, I really saw very um, stark and upsetting patterns of disparities that had to do with mental health and trauma. Um, I saw that people who had a history of traumatic events of various kinds that they, uh, they had more health problems. They seem to have many, many more health problems than people without trauma. I saw that people who had mental illness were treated worse by healthcare providers and by healthcare systems, and that there really seemed to be just such big glaring gaps in, in mental health care need. Uh, I think that's especially true when we get into the psych space. And, you know, I'm saying this as a nurse who works in inpatient psych, uh, our, our mental health care that we provide in many cases, it felt to me like patients would come in and we would flip a coin on whether our treatment really helped them or whether it made them worse off in some cases. And to me, seeing that we did not necessarily have good systems of mental health care that delivered the right treatment to people when they needed it uh, really uh, was something that stood out to me as something that needed to change. And Um, We do have a lot of treatments that work for mental health, not as many as we should. There's a lot of work to be done in the research space. But I think the the thing that really, really 
drew me to this work of doing health services research and mental health was that there are a lot of treatments, there's therapies, there's medications, there are things that have an evidence base that we know work, but we do not deliver those treatments to people, to the right people uh, when they need it. Uh, they're very, very inequitably distributed. And so that's kind of how I got specifically into the mental health services space is seeing that gap between evidence and practice and just seeing firsthand for myself uh, how dysfunctional our mental health care systems can be. Uh, some of it also was personal. Um, like pretty much everyone out there, I uh, have family members and friends who have seen experienced trauma and mental illness. Uh, my family was involved in foster care. And so I really saw firsthand how uh, harmful trauma can be when it happens to kids early in their life and how far reaching it can be. And again, how dysfunctional and inadequate our current systems are uh, for helping people who have experienced trauma resolve those things. And uh, so that's that's what kind of got me into this space of trauma and mental illness. And, you know, I um, I have kind of come to, as I, I, I often talk about myself as being a health services researcher. When I was a nursing student and doing my PhD, uh, a lot of the mentors that I worked with in nursing really strongly pushed this idea that you have a program of research. You have one thing that you study and that you are the expert on this one thing and you just go deeper and deeper and deeper into studying this one topic and this one thing. Um, but in the mental health space, I, I think that that idea of a program of research has never really felt quite right to me because there are so many different things that intersect and come together when it comes to trying to study health services for mental health. And so I've really moved away from um, thinking of myself as a researcher who only studies trauma or who only studies one thing. And I think much more about what are the needs uh, that our mental health systems have and how can I uh, think about being flexible and adaptable to what those needs might be in research, which has led me now to research where I still do work on trauma and ACEs, um, but I also do research on developmental disabilities. I've done some work on mental illness and homelessness and a variety of other things that I see in my clinical practice that I see as being responsive to, um, you know, the needs that, that I'm seeing out there in the world as a nurse. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I, and I want to I want to really kind of um, because some of the some of the stuff that you're talking about is sort of really up my alley uh, from a perspective of uh, I I do veterans research and a lot of this stuff is you know uh, uh, very much kind of connected to to my studies. So when I when I mm -hmm. saw your bio, I'm like, oh, I want to talk to her about that. I want to talk to her about that. Um, but from a, from from the perspective of uh, the, um, the the trauma that you were you were you were just mentioning, and I know that you also are doing work with homelessness and mental health disorders. Um, how are all those uh, connected uh, uh, from your from your perspective from your research? Because um, you know we always a lot of times people default homelessness equals mental health disorders, which is really not mm -hmm. the case. There are yes. obviously homeless individuals out there that are um, that ha do have mental health uh, uh, issues, but uh, what's yes. Yes. what's what's the what's the uh, sort of the four one one on this? Yeah, well, this is a really big question. I, I love it. We could probably talk about this on its own for for a couple of hours. Um, but, you know, I, I think that the way that I've come to think about trauma and, and, and I focus especially on trauma that happens early in our life course. So you mentioned um, veterans. It's interesting. A lot of our approaches to treating trauma and PTSD actually come out of research on veterans. Uh, the first uh, sort of studies of PTSD and the way that PTSD became a diagnosis 
came out of observing the reactions of adults, male war veterans when they were coming back from war. And we kind of formed this, this uh, cluster of symptoms that we call PTSD and, and these different things that we, we call a, a post-traumatic stress disorder. But um, re- as we've studied post-traumatic stress disorder more and looked at the ways that trauma manifests in different populations, what's become really clear is that the way that adult male war veterans manifest trauma is nothing like the way kids who may have experienced abuse or neglect or, or maybe having parents who um, are impaired by substance use or mental illness or who have medical trauma, the way those things affect kids is very, very different from the way it affects adult men who have been in a war. Um, and uh, I, I think the, the frameworks that resonate most with me and that align most with what I see is that when kids experience trauma early in, in development, especially when it happens in those sensitive developmental windows, it really dysregulates their stress response systems and leads to a cascade of dysregulation in their physiology that leads to this relationship we see between trauma early in life and health risk later in life. Um, And I think that when you have uh, this lens, which we sometimes call a trauma-informed lens or a trauma-informed approach to care, where you really think about what might have happened to people in their lives and how it might affect the behavior or the health outcomes that we see in in adults, it really helps you um, understand why people behave the way they do. I think especially when we talk about mental illness uh, and substance use and homelessness, there can be so much uh, stigma and blaming. We often really frame people as you know bad people that have made bad choices and uh, really blame people for, for what we see in the clinical space. When I think if you look at it through a trauma lens and you really think about what are the circumstances of people's lives, what has happened to them in their lives, what have their environments and their context been like for their life that might have led to uh, decisions or, or health outcomes that we see, um, it gives you a lot more empathy and compassion for people, and I think really allows you to meet them where they're at. So that that's kind of how I think about trauma um, in in the in the health space in general. And certainly, there are a lot of intersections between um, trauma and homelessness, and trauma and mental illness. We know that trauma is strongly associated with many different mental disorders, and that people who are homeless disproportionately have a trauma history. But I think you're absolutely right that we have to be really careful about making assumptions that all of these things always go together. Um, we, we, it's not always the case that people who have experienced trauma will go on to develop mental illness. Actually, a lot of people go on to be resilient and, and to overcome what they've experienced. And it's also not the case that everyone who's homeless has mental illness or has trauma. And so I think that what's really important uh, when it comes to really using a trauma-informed lens is that we look at people as individuals and really think about their needs and what they've experienced and understand that many times these things do intersect and that people who come to see me with something like a mental illness, uh, they may have other social needs or other trauma-related needs that I need to think about as a nurse, but also that these things don't always go together and to not let them lead to stereotyping or assumptions about people and, and what they might need in clinical care. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, and I think that that's where, uh, where perhaps there's, there's a lot of bias, uh, or, or prejudice, uh, against, uh, the, the homeless populations as people. And then unfortunately we don't, we don't have the resources. Like, I mean, you're in LA, I'm in LA, uh, it just, the resources just aren't there, uh, to, to help the, the masses that we have, at least in the LA area, uh, and I'm sure the rest of the country isn't that well off either with the, uh, you know, uh, with the issue yeah. of homelessness, so. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, homelessness in, in a city like L.A. And, and other big cities as well, like San Francisco, um, New York City and some others, uh, you know, I think that what most people think of when they think of homelessness is not really very representative of what's really going on. So, you know, in L.A., we have encampments all over the place and we tend to see a very visible kind of street-based homelessness. Uh, we often see people who might have uh, psychotic disorders who are homeless. And because that's what's most visible to us, I think that's what we think homelessness really is, that it's, you know, people who are living on the streets who have untreated mental illness. But the reality is that that's actually a very, very small proportion of people in LA who are homeless. The vast majority are people who are hidden because they may be staying with friends or family or in a car and, and we don't see them in this very visible way. I happen to work in a context where we treat the visibly homeless. We we treat people who are experiencing psychotic disorders and who might be the people that you see um, on the streets. But that's not everybody. And the vast majority of people who are homeless are are not mentally ill and are not in the kind of situation that we often see in L.A. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, we that that's probably like like the biggest uh our biggest numbers are people who are, or just what you mentioned is like, they're living with friends, they're living with family yes, um, out of necessity because they don't have uh, their own physical space uh, or even living in cars. Uh, I mean, that that's because I'm seeing more and more of that uh, people yes. with all their uh, belongings uh, jammed, packed in a car and, you know, being forced to live out of a car. Uh, and during the pandemic, it was sort of unfortunate because I was driving one day and I looked over to the side and there was a family, family of four uh, with a couple of kids with a laptop in front of them next to, I think it was a Starbucks. I want to say they were using the Wi-Fi of the Starbucks, I think, uh, to wow. go to class. And it was really uh, very uh, uh, it, it distressing uh, to even see that uh, to, to that to that extent. So, um, yeah. so, yeah, it's it's a huge it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Um now, from a perspective of, I want to get into the mental health pers- uh, arena really quick with you. Um, from a from a nursing pr- uh, perspective and from a, a scope of practice perspective, where what does nursing have to do? Uh, because I know there's a shortage of mental health uh, clinicians. Period across mm-hmm. the country. Um, yes. How can nursing step up? Uh, because I know there, there's uh, you know, a lot of pushback from various organizations about full scope of practice and all that good stuff. Um, but what, how does nursing step up and try to fill the gap? Where is the gap and how can nursing help fill that gap? Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is such a great, uh, a great question. And I, I think you're on the right track that nursing is absolutely part of the solution. So first, um, something that you mentioned that has come up again and again and again in my research, as well as in my practice, is that one of our biggest problems with mental health in the U.S., is that we just do not have enough providers. That is just an issue that's very, very difficult to get around. And, you know, for all the promise of apps and telehealth and all these ways to try to make mental health more accessible, uh, there is a fundamental problem that we just simply don't have enough mental health care providers. Uh, About a third of Americans live in the designated mental health provider shortage area. And I saw some research a couple of years ago that just was absolutely stunning to me is 70% of counties in the United States do not have a single child psychiatrist. 50% of counties in the United States don't have a single adult psychiatrist. So we're talking about some really, really big gaps. And of course, a lot of those gaps are in rural areas. Um, 
And, you know, I, I see nurses as a huge part of the solution. And I think that one of the things that I'd really love to see is more support uh, for nurses to become psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners and for nurse practitioners and APRNs of other types to get a, uh, the certificate in, in psychiatric mental health nursing so that they can uh, have the expertise to take care of patients' mental health needs. I think that that is uh, a really big promising area where we could grow our mental health uh, workforce. There's not as much research on psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners as there is on other kinds of nurse practitioners. But what we've seen from studies of nurse practitioners in other areas like primary care is that nurse practitioners are more likely to go to those rural and underserved areas and that in many cases they do meet the needs that we have. So um, I, I think there's a lot of potential for, for psychiatric mental health nurses to fill some of that gap. Um, and actually uh, the VA I think is a really big leader in this. Uh, in 2017, the VA um, allowed uh, nurse practitioners full scope of practice in all states, uh, including those that do not have full scope of practice laws in their state. So it's, I think it's really great to see the VA leading the way on this. And, uh, you know, I hope that we'll see other states follow suit because it, it is really a pressing need. And it's clear that doing what we're doing now and, and relying only on, you know, psychiatrists and, and therapists and such to fill the needs is not working. Uh, the incentives are just not really there for people to see the patients that really need it. It's, it's too easy for people to go into private practice and only take uh, insurance where we end up with a situation where it's really just people who live in cities and sort of the, the worried well that have access to mental health care, whereas the kind of patients who I take care of, people who might be uninsured and homeless and experiencing serious mental illness, uh, are left with, with very little to, um, to in terms of mental health services. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, now, <clears throat> in, your, in your opinion, uh, just because something I know many schools uh, deal with is uh, placement for, for clinical preceptors for mental health um, with, with like a sort of, a, it seems like there's a dwindling number of preceptors out there willing to train the next generation. Um, uh, what's, uh, is, is that just simply practitioners being burned out or is that, um, is, is that because uh, we simply, they're just simply not enough uh, practitioners that can precept um, uh, the <laughs> sort of next generation, I guess. Yeah, th this is a really good question, Ali. I don't want to say anything that's going to get me fired here. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, it, no, it, it's, a, it's a hugely important issue. And, and the issue of having um, mentors and preceptors who can train that next generation is very important. So I'll, I'll tell you what I think, and I, I will say this with, um, you know, some humility. I, I am not a clinical placement coordinator, and this is just what I've observed in my own practice. Uh, what I've observed, and again, I work in the safety net where our providers are extremely overburdened with a population of people that are very sick and have very limited access to health services, is that the psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners that I work with are, are so um, overworked and overburdened. They do so much that when I watch them precepting students, uh, it, it really adds a lot to what is already a lot of overwork and burnout. Um, and, and to my mind, I, I don't see how we can ask folks who are already burnt out, overworked and oversubscribed to take on more work for free. Uh, to me, it seems like they're may be a need for a role where we can pay preceptors for the labor that they're doing. I, I just think it's a lot to ask these people to, to do this for free. 
Um, that being said, I know that many schools of nursing really take the view that this is something that's part of your professional practice, that, you know, mentorship and precepting students is something that we should kind of do out of, um, you know, a desire for fostering growth in our profession. And I get that. But, you know, I also precept students as an RN. And um, it again, in, in a context, we often have a lot of patients, very few nurses and very few resources. Uh, it is burdensome to have students. It adds a lot more work. And while I enjoy doing it, um, I think that it's really hard to rely only on people's goodwill and especially the goodwill of people that are already going very far over and above what they're paid for. So that's my, my personal opinion, not the opinion of uh, the place where I work, but uh, <laughs> just, just what I've seen in my own practice. Well, we, we should put that at the beginning of every podcast. The opinions yeah. <laughs> do not reflect the. <clears throat> yeah, I, I agree. But no, I, I mean, I'm, in, I'm, I'm 100% in agreement with you. Uh, uh, and I'll tell you why, because um, and I think we need to do a better job at, at it from a nursing perspective that we compensate nurses for the work that they're doing. And just because yes. we've been doing it, like I'm grateful for everybody who precepted, precepted me over the years for free. Uh, I continue to precept for free, uh, but I think there's something to be said that we add um, we add the value to the work, to that work. And, I, and I'm hundred percent agree. I think my head is my, my next hurting from agreeing with you so much from bobbing <laughs> my head up and down. Um, but, uh, but, but I agree, but I think there should be compensation. I mean, there are States that do um, uh, that, that have a tax there, you know, they, they get tax relief for people, for nurses that are precepting. Uh, there are um, a lot of some institutions that compensate people for their time uh, and then there are, you know, um, some of that burden sometimes falls with on institutions that pay preceptors, but in return, they charge the students more. So uh, I think there, yes. there's, a, yes. there's, a, there's a lot to be, to be hashed out, but, I, but I'm not disagreeing with you from the perspective of there's a value to preceptorship and people who do precept should be compensated for that time. Um, because it is, it is an extra thing that they are doing. And just because we haven't done it for years or ever, that uh, doesn't mean we should continue to do that. Um, yes. And yeah. I, I actually think the point that you're making about value is extremely important in nursing. I was talking to a nurse I know um, a, a couple of weeks ago, and he told me that, you know, he, he works in a clinic that uh, was doing a lot of work to prevent uh, cotties in their patients. Mm. And the hospital leadership came in and told these nurses, you know, great job preventing these cotties for everyone that you prevent, saving us, you know, half a million dollars pizza party for your unit for doing such good work. And he said, <laughs> wait a minute, if we're here, us, the nurses are preventing millions of dollars in cotty costs. Why yeah. are we not getting any payment for the value we're providing? And I think that the point that you're raising uh, about paying nurses for value, for care that we know results in better outcomes for our patients is a conversation that we have to have in nursing. I think that we often start new initiatives and we want nurses and, and nursing units and, and organizations to embrace these practices that we know provide value, whether that has to do with staffing or evidence-based care practices or precepting students. I absolutely think that adds value, but we expect people to do all these things, but be paid exactly the same. I, I think that really thinking about value-based models of payment for nurses is something that uh, really could could help us and I think could really uh, be transformative for a lot of patient outcomes. It's really hard to ask people who are, again, overworked, oversubscribed, have been treated the way nurses have been treated in this pandemic uh, to do a lot of extra work for free when that's not how it goes for a lot of our colleagues. 
yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm, 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 I 100% agree with you. So, uh, no argument from me. No argument from me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, so I just want to be uh, cognizant of your time. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, anything else you want to share with us? I mean, you, you are, you are a early career uh, individuals. I think uh, uh, this is something that right off the bat uh, kind of caught my eye when I saw you on, on social media. I was like, I was like, you're doing a lot and you're very young and doing it. So I think there's, <laughs> I think there's something to be, to be said about that. Uh, but, uh, and you're doing incredible work. And I have to mention, congratulations on your nomination, uh, and and you're and you're going to be you are going to be a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing this November. Yes, yes, I I am. Thank you. I'm I'm very excited to be joining the um, the academy. It's been uh, an organization I've kept an eye on for a long time. A lot of nurses that I look up to and respect uh, and and really follow closely. Um, are a part of the academy, and so I'm I'm really honored to be to be joining as well this fall. Um. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that the, the last thing I'd say in closing, I knowing that I think quite a few of your listeners are students or, or folks who are like me early in their nursing career. And this is something I, I tell my students. I think that as a nurse, it's really important to think about what is that level of impact that you want to have. You know, I think for some nurses making that change I talked about at the beginning as a student with one patient at a time, one family at a time can be very meaningful and can sustain you for a whole career. But if you are someone who, you know, like me, and I think probably like you, Ali, noticed other problems that are bigger than one patient at a time in healthcare, I, I absolutely um, hope that the future nurses uh, will feel empowered to go into leadership roles and make those changes and, and not just kind of sit in a role where, um, where you're a cog in a machine, the way I described. And I don't think that necessarily means you have to go and get a PhD. That's one way to make change. It's not the only way. I think that as... Uh, nurses, whatever your role might be, um, you you can step up and, and be a leader and make those changes. So um, I, I just would encourage your listeners to think about that. What's the level of change you want to make? Because we need nurses to um, to step into leadership roles and really think about asking the hard questions and, and coming up with solutions to the problems that we're seeing out there. It's obvious that uh, what we've done in the past, relying on, um, you know, physicians and healthcare administrators and business people and health systems, uh, that's not going to be enough for us to have solutions to the kind of issues that we're seeing. And I, I think that nurses can be a big part of the solution, certainly in the mental health space, but a lot of others as well. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, that was, uh, it's great insight. Uh, I appreciate your work. I appreciate your voice. And I have to mention, I appreciate the fact that you were a voice of nursing, uh, early on in the pandemic, uh, I, I did happen to catch you a few times on TV. I'm like, I know her. Uh, so, uh, so thank you for being that voice. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I, hopefully we can, we can connect at some point. We're both in LA. Um, and I look forward to uh, the rest of your, I'm sure it's going to be a very powerful career. Um, so we have been listening to Dr. Kristen Choi, uh, and uh, I look forward to bringing you more guests in the very near future. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com. 
for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.